this season turn it up to 10 sort of like a bad habit we're gonna do it again ready or not we're gonna tie some ends go tell a 36 try to grab all the friends we're back like we never left on track like a treble clef skip a beat on the seventh rest bring feast we don't pass them over we got the first fruits no way to show us this yoke is easy this burns light even with a loud mouth trying to eat at the mic even if we down south the humidity spike bales torn in two so we gonna be all right it's all grace till the half goes off heretics better run till the top blows off got them all stood still like a job full of botox time to break them down like a jaw on a blow pop don't stop they're in need of it though through grace by faith they could easily grow new wave new age new way to see bro now one truth life one way to the throne Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. This is Messiah Matters number 428. I found Rob. My name is Caleb Hag. And I am found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Yes. To quote a famous hymn. We haven't done hymns for a while. Oh. We have we have one on request. Nice. We should do it. That's Rob Van Hoff. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's me. Yeah. Uh, so, interesting start to our day. And uh, this show has better be really good. And the reason why is because I'm taking next week off. And I know that we just took two weeks off a couple weeks ago. But the family has a planned vacation. And so, I was going nice. to sh- I was gonna try to do a show, a pre-recorded show, next Wednesday. But it's just not going to work. We got so much stuff going on. But I have some exciting news 
We have been asked by some of our uh, watchers uh, for quite some time to do subtitles. Now, I don't know if we're going to be able to do subtitles, but our uh, graphic artist slash uh, chat room administrator slash all around. We call him Miracle Mike. Miracle Mike uh, found a program that we're going to start using and we're going to try this out. It might not work, but we're going to try to transcript all of our shows. It's going to be oh, awesome. Oh, cool. So people can search and find specific quotations they hate. That's right. And then they can tweet them. That's the other thing is that I've been looking into it. Elon Musk has made it a lot easier to live stream on Twitter. And the, the thing is that I'm always concerned that YouTube is going to sense, censor our show or just discontinue our show. Um, and so I've been toying with the idea of simultaneously, I said that wrong, that's okay, simultaneously uh, live streaming to Twitter as well. Which would be really interesting to me because it's a built-in chat room. Do we, can we listen to a clip? Do you have a clip available? What's the, is that the one, why do you hate? Do you have, do we have that handy? Yeah, it's not, hey, give me a second. Keep talking, why, why are you, why are you looking for that clip? I'm just thinking about this. Like, you know, we've talked, Caleb and I, we've talked about like, where, what would we like to see Messiah Matters become? Like, are we just right. repeating ourselves or is there a way that we can be more effective in communicating the core bits? Because the Bible doesn't change, right? Of course. The Bible, it, right? And so it's okay that we repeat ourselves, you know? that that's. But the question is, are we sharpening <laughs> according to, are we learning of how to be effective with the given cultural tech, you know, AI and all this kind of stuff. So before but, I but the, having text, what do you call them? Transcriptions. I think that's yeah. really cool. And it just made me think when I said, you know, people can find specific quotes they hate. Yes. It made me think of why do you hate us so much? That, so that's the uh, Paul Archer asked, what about Rumble? I will answer that question as soon as we do this. How rude! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Going? That was it, but I don't think it's going to. Hang on just a sec. Let's see. A little louder. Let's see if it's actually making it to my. How rude. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. Agreed. That is a good mashup of clips, man. That was uh, that was back in my mashup days. I was in my prime, man. That is ma- that's prime mash, dude. <laughs> yeah, man. We got to use hundred percent. That that's, that's a good one. That is a good one. Okay, to answer Paul Archer's question in the chat room, what about Rumble? The answer is we're on Rumble. Uh, our channel is on Rumble. You can watch all of our stuff. It kicks directly from YouTube over to Rumble. Anything that's posted on our uh, YouTube channel is automatically on Rumble. So if you would rather watch us on Rumble, you can do so. The problem with Rumble that I have found, here's the problem that I've found with Rumble, is that it's just lacking in terms of a video perform like a video platform. Uh, it, when I, I tried to switch from YouTube over to Rumble, and uh, man, just... 
half the stuff I searched for, there was no videos on it. And so I ended up going back to YouTube. Now, those who are hooked on Rumble, um, yeah, go subscribe to our show. Check it out there. Uh, I don't know if we should be... Here's the thing is I don't know if we should be uh, uh, trying to live stream to multiple platforms at, at once. Right now, what I do is I live stream to YouTube, and then I, this is the back end of the show. People are like, get to theology. But some people like this kind of stuff. So um, right now, I live stream to YouTube, and I, and I record to my, to my machine all at the same time. I don't think it would, it would take much more to shoot it out to, um, to Twitter and or Rumble all at the same time so people could watch it live on those platforms. The thing that I like about Twitter is that uh, it's becoming a much more interesting platform. And if they monetize, which Musk has said that I follow Musk on this a lot. He's talked a lot about his, the video element that they're bringing in. If they monetize, then it will probably do very well for us. Now, right now, we don't have we don't have a lot of people that follow us on Twitter. We only have about 70 followers on Twitter. However, I have a feeling that if we live streamed on Twitter, I think that that would change rather quickly. I could be wrong, but I think so. Okay, let's get to more important matters. Uh, I want to talk about a comment that came in. This is a question that came in uh, actually just two days ago. Maria asked this. Now, we were talking about circumcision. This is on a, so you can go find this uh, comment and this clip on our YouTube channel. It is, the clip itself was, did the Egyptian, did the ancient Egyptians or did the Egyptians circumcise? And the answer that we came to, of course, on that was yes. Yes, they did. They did circumcise. They did it differently than Israel was commanded to do. They probably did it before Abraham was commanded to circumcise. That's debatable, of course. But uh, it was uh, it was different. It was done differently. And uh, I made the passing comment that uh, the circumcision that was given to Abraham is a sign of the virgin birth. And uh, so Maria asks, a sign of the virgin birth? Can you please explain this? I can't explain this. Actually, there is articles that I will direct you to. First of all, uh, my father did an article that was presented at the Evangelical Theological Society on this very subject. Uh, because it was presented at the Evangelical Theological Society, it is extremely heady. Uh, it was not made, he did not write it for the average person. He definitely wrote it knowing he would be talking to a room full of scholars. And so he assumes a extremely well-educated audience uh, so what I did was uh, when we were putting together Celebrate the Feast, which is available on TorahResource.com, uh, which I will bring up for you right there, TorahResource.com, go find it on TorahResource.com. I think it's 25 bucks or $30 or something like that. It's a compilation of all sorts of things, everything that our staff has done on, on Passover. I rewrote his art. Well, I didn't rewrite it. I took the uh, conclusion of his article and I wrote my own article on the subject for the average person. And that can be found in uh, the book, Celebrate the Feast. It can also be found, I believe, on my personal website, pronomian.com. And uh, you can go find it there. I think if you just search circumcision, it'll come up. Um, I think it's called circumcision, the sign of the covenant or something, something to that effect. Okay, so let's explain. Let me explain this and then I'm going to let Rob just hit this one home. And I don't know. Rob could totally disagree with me on this which is totally fine. But here's my, here's my father's thought and then my stealing of his work and then, anyway. So um, Abraham is told that he's gonna have a son, okay? Now Isaac is a foreshadow of the coming Messiah, right? We see this on the mountain, right? He and, and uh, Abraham says, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Okay, now, obviously, the ram is caught there, but 
we believe this is also a, a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So if we think of Abraham, or if we think of Isaac in terms of the uh, uh, foreshadow of the coming Messiah and what he would do, th- that's I think an important key to this. Um, but Abraham is told he's going to have a son, and Abraham says this is impossible. Sarah is beyond the uh, the time of having children, right? So she's and she was metabolic. barren in the first place. So there's two yeah. two strikes yeah. against her. Two strikes, and Abraham thinks that she's out, right? Not going to happen. And so what does he say? He tries to do it himself. He takes Hagar. He has a child with Hagar. Ishmael comes forth, and I believe it's in chapter 17 of Genesis. He says, please, let the covenant be passed through Ishmael. And what does God say? God says, no, I'm not going to pass it through Ishmael. I will give you a son. And all of a sudden, for some reason, the narrative breaks and God gives Abraham this extremely uh, barbaric and extremely puzzling sign of the covenant which he's going to pass through Isaac. And the sign of that covenant is that he is to cut away the flesh of the male organ of procreation. Now, if you look at like Judaism and even within Christianity, and I I note this in my paper, people have really kind of scratched their heads at why this is the specific sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Sure, it talks about in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and all these kind of things. But (coughs) why is it that that, uh, God tells him that this is the sign of the covenant? And what my father has, has concluded, and I think he's right, which is why I wrote on this as well, because uh, I think it's a very, very important, important connection. Uh, what my father wrote is that it's because the male organ of procreation is taken out of the equation. It's not that, uh, that it's going to come through the normal means of procreation. Rather, a woman who is barren and a woman who is beyond her years of having children is going to have a child. It's going to be a miracle. It is a miracle child that is coming forth. And it's not by Abraham. It's not by whatever he's trying to do. He's trying to force the issue, and he tries to force it with Hagar. And God says, no. So he cuts away that that skin to show this is not on your own doing. This is not part of your own doing. As a prophecy of the coming Messiah, it also is a sign that the coming Messiah, the one that Isaac represents, would come not through the natural means of procreation, right? That the male organ of procreation would be taken out of the equation. And therefore, I believe that ultimately the sign of circumcision, the cutting away of that flesh, is a sign that the Messiah would come not by means of that organ of procreation. What does that point to? It points to the virgin birth because in your seed, all the nations of the earth will will be blessed. How? through the the coming one who is going to come not by the male organ of procreation, but is going to be a supernatural birth. It's going to be a virgin birth. And this is why we, we, the mark of in your seed, all the nations of the earth, earth will be blessed, which is the gospel message, which is the message of Christ, right? Uh, the, the sign of that is that the males 
cut away this flesh and they, they ultimately, and this is, this is the irony, this is the irony of this sign is that, and I'll stop talking in just a second, Rob, I, and let you take over. The irony of this is that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, in my opinion, is the sign of the virgin birth, which the Jews maintain, but don't understand. Whereas the Christians, maybe they understand, maybe they don't, but they believe in the virgin birth, but they have rejected the sign. Right? They've said, well, we don't have to do that anymore because that was part of the old covenant. It should be flipped, right? Mm -hmm. The Christians should be like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to bear the sign of the virgin birth in my flesh. And the Jews are the ones who should say, we don't believe in that. We're not going to do it anymore. But it's not that way. All right. Go for it, Rob. Anything to say on that? Do you agree, disagree? What give no, me a take? I, I, I agree. Because yes, it, yeah, agreed, done, <laughs> agreed, Next. done. No, well, I mean, we have to remember that the covenant with Abraham is in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? And Paul in Galatians calls this the gospel. He says right. the scripture foreseeing how God justifies the nations by faith, preach the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, in your in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Right. Um, and that is, I think, middle of Galatians 3, I think. Um, 18. It's, question, it's Galatians 3, 18. Here. Big questions. Yeah. How could God guarantee such a thing? Right. And in Hebrews 6, it says, that we learn about the same thing towards the end of Hebrews 6. He says that God, not only did he promise it, but he swore by himself because he couldn't swear by anyone greater and that it's impossible for God to lie. So this is such a mind-blowing thing. How could God guarantee a blessing to the nations of the world when the Torah comes along and says, blessing is only through obedience and cursing is disobedience? How can God guarantee? And the answer is because they're like in John one, because we're born of God. So it, it's the father's will. That's why in Galatians four, he says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, you know, born of a woman or born of a woman born under law that he might redeem those who are under law. Okay. <clears throat> that creation itself, we know from Genesis one is by God's speech. Right. Let there be light. There was light. That his promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed is no different of an of an authoritative statement. Right. It is absolutely true. And when he said to Abraham, go and count the stars if you're able, that's what your offspring will be. It wasn't just like God, like, oh, you know, I'm I'm just gonna rent out uh, you know, some giant, what's a you know, I don't know, a famous uh stadium or something, and I'm just going to have a bunch of seats, and I'll just send invites out, and we'll see who shows up, if anybody. That's that's not the theology of God. God says, I'm going to fill the seats, and I'm going to, I've got a stadium, I'm going to fill the seats, and I know the name of everybody who's who's got a seat. RSVP, baby. Yeah, and, and there's nobody, nobody's going to miss out who I have a seat for. They're going to be there, even if they don't even exist yet. This is this is the mind blowing thing to Abraham, and so the the closest and he believes my, it, and he, yeah, believes, he believes it. it. Right, right, exactly. That's what's amazing, and that's what Paul says. We have to understand 
whatever happens at Mount Sinai, whatever happens with the deliverance of Israel from Egypt and the giving of the law at Sinai, etc., we have to understand within the framework of the covenant with Abraham, not the other way, way around. You don't start with Sinai and just start making laws and say, yeah, we just, we just hear God's laws. It doesn't work that way because the whole creation is based on the revelation of the sons of God, as it says in Romans 8. Who are the sons of God? They're the sons of Abraham. They're the ones who were born not by flesh, not by the will of man, but by but by God. Um, and uh, so this, this is crucial for us to un understand this. I had one other thought, and it's gone now. Oh, oh, this was it. That I think that back to Sarah and Sarah being barren, her uh, karat says, and, and we learn... I love this in the Torah. It's the very end of Genesis 11. We learn that Sarah was what it says in Hebrew, akara, barren. We learn that Sarah, Sarai is her name, is barren before Genesis 12. So the reader, the attentive reader learns about the situation with Avram and Sarai's marriage as right. akara. That's the problem. And then all of a sudden, God says, get up, go to a place I've never shown you, you know, that, 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 that. And everything is subsequent. We're, if we've been attentive, we're keeping in this mind, but wait a minute, Sarah's Akara, Sarah's Akara. And then it leads all the way to the Hagar incident, Ishmael. God's like, nope, nope, sorry, not him. Uh, I And you're going to name him Isaac, by the way, right? He hasn't even been conceived yet. God says, you're going to name him Isaac, and I'm going to continue my covenant with him and his seed after him. So right. God's already guaranteed guaranteeing grandchildren, Jacob and Esau, right? And so God, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's all there. But, but to the two points about Sarai becoming Sarah, she's not only barren, but now she's 80, what eight, was she 86? So she's past menopause. This is the closest thing I think in Tanakh to a hint of a uh, virgin birth in that, um, because all that's left, what's, the, how could God up that? I'm going to take a, a virgin girl and she's going to, uh, she's going to become pregnant. Why? By, by my word, just because I'm the creator and I can do this. And it's so amazing. And this is, this is a crucial thing that separates among a myriad of things that separates the biblical canon, the Holy Bible, from other religions and how they, you know, their mythologies and their stories and stuff like this. Anyway, I think it's a great point, great question. And uh, still there. I don't know. I don't know if I added oh, anything. To okay. I got a couple was. of things going on here. Are you ready for this? Sure. Okay, number one, uh, Love is Bigger in the chat room asks, are, is TR going to have any summer classes? I am so glad that you asked because hmm. the answer did we, is... Did we pay her? Was that prompted? Did, yeah. Was this prompted? No, it was not. She is not on the payroll. However, and we did, I, and I think that was a genuine question. No, However, let she, me tell you about it. She's feeling the vibe. She's, she's feeling, she is feeling, <laughs> she's feeling the, the vibe through the screen. The answer is... Yes, we are. Our very own Rob Van Hoff is going to be teaching. Actually, I'm, why am I talking? Rob, go for it. What are you, you going to, 
What well, we're are you putting going together. To teach I, I've run my outline by Tim Haig, our, our theological stamp of approval. Um, right. Final uh, uh, voice is looking through my outline right now. But basically, we're looking at putting, I think it'll be four videos. The first one will be a little bit longer than the three follow ups will be shorter. We're going to look at having a little knowledge quiz or knowledge check, a couple multiple choice questions that will link video to video. So you get, so it kind of just, it, it shepherds you through, like you'll do the first video and then a couple of little uh, questions and then it'll access to the next one. And it's on prayer. That's right. It's on, it's on prayer. And uh, so we're looking forward to creating it and, uh, Caleb and I've been talking about it. Caleb's got some ideas of how how we might shape this and make it really user friendly. That so this is going to be a an attempt to do something. The, the content it's not going to be it's not really new content in terms of I mean it's good old biblical teaching, but it's it's the format that we're going to be exploring how to make it really user friendly in this age of smartphones and and. Uh, Technology, we're, we're AI. Not, it might not actually be me. It might be a robot. We'll see. Yeah. So here's the thing: is that we're not sure on price yet. It'll be very reasonably priced, though. I have suggested twenty dollars. One one million dollars. One million dollars. <laughs> I have suggested twenty dollars, um, and we'll see. We'll see if that's the price point. We'll see how much work goes into it and, all, and everything. But um, yeah, it, we will have dates that it opens soon. It'll be probably in July. We all have registration dates, which you will be which you'll be able to register then. But I'm not done yet with the surprises. Last week, Ooh. now this is not going to be live, into, so don't run to Tor Resource yet. Last week, I promised that there would be discounts on today's show for Tor Resource. I got two discounts for you. Okay, starting the 11th. May 11th, 2023, that's, that's tomorrow, uh, and it'll run for a week. It'll end on the 19th of May, 2023. You will have the option of two different codes. Get your pen and paper ready because I'm going to give you these codes. You can enter these at checkout, and if you enter them at checkout, you will get these discounts. So the first one, these are all lowercase, by the way. There's no uppercases at all. The first one is MM20 for Messiah Matters 20, right? MM20. You're going to get a 20% discount on your shopping cart, okay? Now, it will not work in tandem with this second. Uh, it does not work, by the way, uh, on library memberships. Uh, you can get a 5% discount. Because does it have to be our, lowercase, uppercase M? Does it matter? Is it case sensitive? Uh, well, it is case sensitive, and it's too low, lowercase, MM20. Um, the second mm, 20, mm, 20. Yes. Uh, the second code is library, all lowercase library five, and that'll give you a 5% discount on a library membership. Now, the reason that they, there are two codes and we're not giving 20% off a library membership is because if you don't know what the library membership is, it is a screaming deal already. It's a hundred dollars for the year. You have to pay a whole year in advance, but hundred dollars for the year. And then you get a, uh, access to our entire digital library plus everything like plus other teachings from people like Ariel Berkowitz and others. There are people in there that you don't even know are have, have teachings in there. Spike Basaris has something in there. Uh, there's others, there's others. And, and we are uh, continuing to add to our digital library. By the way, a little birdie told me 
that there is a new book in the works at TorahResource.com. And that will be coming out probably in the next... With, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself a wide berth here. I'm going to say within the next six months. And um, it's, uh, it's been asked for a lot. And uh, when we publish it, it will have a digital element and uh, it'll, we'll give some time for people to, uh, to buy it and then it'll go into the library, but uh, it will end up in the library as well. So just saying, library membership, if you don't have one already. Uh, Springs here tomorrow, at Torah Resource. Yeah, library five is going to be your <laughs> discount code. You'll get five bucks off uh, and uh, it's a screaming deal already. So an even greater screaming deal. Okay. Now I got to remember to make those <laughs> make those live. Um, okay, let's move on. I really want to get to this comment. This is from someone named Izzy, and and uh, this is we did a vi- uh, a short video clipped from last week or two weeks ago, and it was on rabbinic literature and whether or not Paul <laughs> did Paul quote the Mishnah was the question asked, and. Um, uh, any zipper hoodies on the horizon? Yeah, I, isn't zipper hoodies are already on Messiah Matters? We I think there that. are some up there. Yeah, we already announced that. We announced that last week. Where have you been? Love is bigger. You got to go to the store, go to merch. Hang on, I'm going to find it and just make sure that I'm not tripping out here because now I'm scared. Yep, there it is. Messiah Matters fleece zip up hoodie, forty five dollars to forty seven fifty depending on the size that you uh, that you get. There is a thirty six on the front. And then there is a full-on Messiah Matter season ten on the back, so go for it, go go purchase away. You can buy as many as you want. Okay, so Izzy writes in on this video that we were talking about. Did Paul quote the Mishnah? Izzy says this. He says, "I'm Jewish and I have no dog in the fight, but the Mishnah was codified around the year 200, and certain of the traditions in the Mishnah date back at least 150 years to rabbis in the late Second Temple era." When the, when the New Testament writers lived as well. The late Second Temple era sages Hillel and Rabbi Gamaliel are quoted in the Mishnah. It's not even necessary to get into the question of whether the oral Torah goes back to Moses. But there were oral traditions that the New Testament writers knew about and drew upon, even if they did, did so with their particular own understanding. That's the entire comment. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The- he says that the oral Torah goes back to Moses. No, he said that that's not even a he does no he he says that's not even a, a question that we need to talk about. In other words, he's oh, not oh, saying okay. He's, he's not saying, saying he that we just take that for granted. Okay, yeah, okay. No, he he he's not even taking it for granted. He's saying gotcha. I, what I'm saying is is that he what I the way I'm reading this is I don't think that the oral Torah goes back to Moses. Okay, but, so this is let me repeat back what I think I'm hearing. He's no. saying, hey, um, he first of all he's Jewish. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. But that doesn't really. This and other useless pieces of information. <laughs> no, I mean, in I, the, I guess I don't quote. understand what the, um, the idea <laughs> is that the Mishnah was codified around the year 200 yep. and which of course is post temple destruction, yep. but it, the Mishnah itself contains quotes from Hillel and Gamaliel who lived in the late second temples period there which is when the apostles lived so therefore they certainly were yeah they were certainly pulling from the 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 the, the traditions so he's just stating this as fact or is he asking do we agree or what no he's stating that as fact oh and so so here's gonna be here's gonna be the response 
Okay, here's my response. Let's read it again. I'm Jewish. I don't know why this is put in. I'm Jewish and I have no dog in the fight. But the Mishnah was codified around the year 200, and certain traditions of the Mishnah date back at least 150 years. Prove it. That is my response. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the Mishnah was codified in, in the year 200. The only evidence that you have is, is uh, writers, rabbini, rabbis, in the, in the Middle Ages saying that the Mishnah was codified. That's it. You don't have, it's like when the, it's like, let me Imagine give you an example. Imagine a court of law. Imagine a court, <laughs> Caleb, you're the judge and I'm a lawyer and wait, I come up and I say, here's the document that says. No, 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 wait, wait here, here's a perfect example. Look, the Catholic church says that the, that they've had a Pope all the way since, since Paul or for, uh, since Peter. That's why, right. they do. why is what this person is saying? What Izzy is saying is that we should believe people who say things. So uh, because the because the later Catholic Church says that the popes that there's uh, Pope secession all the way from Peter on, we should just believe it. We shouldn't understand that the popes actually came around in the you know in the later third, fourth, fifth century, and that the idea of the pope like having ultimate authority doesn't come around into the fifth or sixth century. No, we should just accept what people say. There's a reason that the rabbis want to tell you that the that the Mishnah is codified in the 200s and that the traditions go back farther. And the reason why is because they want to tell you that the New Testament is based on those things. And Izzy has bought hook, line, and sinker into it. There is no historical data whatsoever that would suggest this to be true. I'm going to keep going, and then you can come back and uh, tell me your thoughts. The rabbis in the late Second Temple era, when the New Testament writers lived as well, the late Second Temple era sages Hillel and Rabbi Gamaliel are quoted in the Mishnah. I have done a video on this, and there was a, uh, a Messianic apologist who uh, just got so upset that I would say such a thing. But I am not convinced that any of these people, any of the quotes in the in the Mishnah, go back to the people that they say are quoting them. I think what I think honestly, what's happening is they have to attach their quotes to somebody to make them feel like they have a real strong. Uh, uh, emphasis. I suggested that uh, Hillel and Shemai never said anything that, that's quoted in the in the Mishnah, and and people just got so upset about that. But ultimately, if I really, I mean, we see this in Christianity, we see it in Judaism, we see it in all, all different places. If you want something to, to have some emphasis, then attach a name to it. The reason that we have pseudepigraphical works throughout history is because people know that if they say something and they want it to be taken seriously, well, put the name Enoch on it or put the name, you know, uh, Peter on it or put the name, I mean, you put all these different names on it. Why? To give it a, a, a emphasis. Guess the what? The Gospel of Judas. Remember yeah. that when that came out, like with the uh, Dan Brown, uh, Da Vinci Code and all that. And all these people, they look at these things and they say, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's pseudepigraphical. That's no big deal. But then they look at the mission. They say, of course, Gamliel said this. Of course, Hillel said this. And the point is, is you don't have, I mean, I will even give the notion that the that the Mishnah was, was compiled in the third or fourth century. I'll give you that. I don't think that's necessarily true, but let's just pretend that that is true. Okay. Now, is there is there proof of that? I don't think there is. But you have you have uh, the, the manuscript of the mission of the first manuscript, the full manuscript of the mission that comes out that we have is in the 1200s. It's contained in the in the uh, I'm sorry, the 1100s. It's, it's contained in, in a uh, codex of the of the Talmud. You don't have anything prior to that. Now, some people might say, well, we have a fragment from the Cairo Geniza. 
It's like two words or three words. It's real small. And there's a, there's a, I mean, the Geniza, to be fair, is an ongoing research and they are finding more and more little fragments, but they're still new. They're new fragments. They're medieval fragments. Right. They're not from, you know, third century. So ultimately, what, this is what, this this is, is what this scholars what I, have to do. Scholars have to take what they do is they look at the emergence and the, the kind of the trajectories of the rabbinic corpus. And they know that there's a Babylonian Talmud, there's a, a Talmud of the land of Israel, they call it the Jerusalem Talmud. And inside both those Talmuds, there is nestled quotations of something called the Mishnah. But if you compare the quotations of the Mishnah in the Babylonian Talmud with the quotations of the Mishnah in Jerusalem Talmud, they don't, it's not a fixed, there's not a stable text. What you see is, is a an emerging of discussion struggle to try to understand the teachings that are stemmed from Rabbi Akiva's disciples. And they are said to have been compiled by Judah the Prince around, and that's estimated around the year 200. But there's no documentary yeah. evidence for this. It, and and so I, we have... We have other things that we can look at. We can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? We we actually have an ancient Jewish library, right? That is very diverse and very large. That stems from the first century BC through the first century AD, right? If not longer. And we have other uh, Dead Sea Scroll uh, discoveries also that. Uh, Tell us way more accurate detail about the the Jewish world. Um, not only that, we have the we have we know about the Samaritans. You know, the Samaritans had a Torah of Moses that also that said Mount Gerizim is where they're supposed to worship. Right. So, do we say, well, okay, the Samaritans had a Torah and it said Mount Gerizim? Well, we should just believe that. Should we all become Samaritans just because they modified? They had a text and they modified it. Jacob Neusser was Jacob Neusser was one of the main scholars in the 70s that started really publishing in English to say, look, just because the Talmud says a rabbi said something. Right. And what he what he did, I mean, he learned the right what the he learned the hard way. Because what Neusner did as a young scholar was he said, you know what? There's this, there's this famous rabbi, Yochanan Ben Zakai. Uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai. I'm going to write his biography. How am I going to do it? I'm going to just scour through all the rabbinic literature and find every time there's a little story about Yochanan ben Zakkai, and I'm going to write it on a three by five. I'm exaggerating. And then I'm just going to string them all together. And then I'm going to just tell the story. And he did that. And he had a book, Life of Yochanan ben Zakkai. And then later, all of a sudden, he started realizing that, wow, you can't do that because I'm, I'm pulling from all these sources of people that never even knew from each other. And what he realized he would also see uh, in that study, he would see the same quote attributed to different rabbis. Right. And he's like, wait a minute, how can, and then, so we started learning that each of these rabbinic classics, like the Tal Babylonian Talmud or the different uh, Midrashim, emerged in specific historical times and places, and that all what they did is they drew on a pool of famous names 
and little anecdotes to tell stories that were relevant in that pre- in their present moment. Right. And so the big famous one is like, you can look in the Babylonian Talmud, stories of Hillel and Shammai, right? The famous one, you know, the, the Gentile went to Shammai and said, convert me. And uh, it, it is, it, while I stand on one foot, right? And Shammai chases him away with a stick. And so then he goes to Hillel and says, convert me while I stand on one foot. And he's like, okay, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay. And he converted him, right? And there's all these, and there's there's a whole sequence of these. And people think th- that, oh, this is like a story. This is like happened. And no, no, these are rabbinic storytellings for right. the whatever, fourth, fifth century Mesopotamia that are telling little moral lessons, drawing on the same two uh, kind of prototy- prototype sages, one, the mean guy, one, the nice guy. And they just tell these, you know, story after story for kids. That's like little moral lessons. Right. But it's like, it's you, like that book. You Jacob can't the just Baker. go that, Oh, that this is like a historical thing that happened. Right. And so this is, this is the issue. It's, it's uh but here, here, here's just a couple of things. Number one, I'm not saying that there weren't traditions in the first century. We know that there was tradition in this first century. Yeah, and they, and and some Sadducees had different traditions than the Pharisees, and the Essenes had different traditions. The Essenes didn't celebrate Hanukkah or Purim, right? They all had their own oral instruction about right. how, who, what it meant to be Israel, what it meant to keep the Torah of Moses. The thing is with the rabbis of the of the Mishnah is that they're taking and cherry picking from what existed at their time, and they're giving it a a story, what we call a myth of origin, right? A story of origin. Yeah, we go way back, and and we go way back to the sages in the Second Temple period wasn't enough, because they're like, oh, we got to go all the way back to Moses. Like so to as Moses, time goes right. on, it stretched, and they right. gave themselves a longer and longer history to where all of a sudden they actually embrace, and this is the Orthodox Jews today, that Moses received two distinct Torahs at Mount Sinai, one written, that's the one that we have in writing, and one totally oral, and that it was faithfully transmitted every generation all the way down. Here's the um, thing and, is that and now and then they believe it. So then you tell you if you see one more point, like you can see Orthodox rabbis today teaching and they'll they'll teach like, yeah, they'll be reading about the story of David. Yeah, David was studying the Talmud right here. And like they actually project. Well, the biggest one is they they call him Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Rabbeinu Moses our rabbi. They make Moses a rabbi. That's like Peter our Pope, right? Right. They make they, yes. they project their own exactly their own institution, and they need to give it a backstory. And so Peter becomes the Pope, Moses becomes a rabbi. And the question is, do you want to jump? Is that your worldview? Do you want to inhabit a world where those things are accepted as true? And for me, no, I, I can't. I can't do that because it's it's not true. So several things on this. Number one, scholarship, the scholarly world bought in to the notion that the uh, that the Mishnah was around in the first century. And they did this all the way up until the, the just like Rob said, until Neusner started to push on this, right? So 1970s and beyond is where you start to have a push against this. But because the scholarly world accepted this, 
the average person accepted this too. And so it just became, it became oral history that the Mishnah was compiled in the second century and that it went all the way back at least 150 years, if not farther. And that the, and that the New Testament is commenting on the Mishnah. And the point here is that now scholarship is saying, whoa, 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 hang on. We're seeing all these discrepancies. We're seeing places that we know these stories are not actually, a story. they're not real stories, they're fake, but they're like lessons. They're attributed to multiple different rabbis, so they're clearly not given to one rabbi. They just attach them to different people. And so the, the scholarly world is pulling back on this. Now, of course, the people in the pews are going to be the last to get the message. What is really interesting about this, though, is that the Messianic movement, those in the Messianic movement, are so enamored with Judaisms, with the Judaism idea, that they don't want to accept this. So you have, when I, when I did uh, a video, this was a couple months ago, I did a video on pronomini.com about whether or not the, the quote, the, whether or not the Mishnah actually contains any actual quotes from Hillel and Shammai. Like, were they even real people? And I think that they are real people. I think that they were real people. But do we have anything that we can actually attribute to them? And my answer was, I don't think so. I don't think that we have any proof that these people said anything that the Mishnah says that they said. And there are a couple of people in the Messianic movement who, I mean, they could not believe that I would say such a thing. And this is going to have wide-reaching ramifications and all that kind of stuff. And I'm pulling quotes from Newsner and from, you know, other scholars that is saying exactly the same thing. And it's like, this isn't going to have wide-reaching ramifications because this is what scholars have been saying. You just haven't caught up to it. And not only that, but you don't want to accept it. And so for some reason, many in the Messiah, not all, and my father would be a good example of not all because my father is the first one who proposed this to me. And that's when I started saying, oh yeah, look at that. But you have people in the, in the Messianic movement who are just not going to accept that. They want, the, they want Yeshua and his disciples to be quoting the rabbis. They don't want the, rabbinic, the later rabbinical literature to be responding to Christianity. And I think that I, in, I think it's in my Acts commentary, I think. I go through a couple of examples of how this, of, of stories that people say, oh yeah, this was probably around in the first century, but I turn it around and say, I think that they're commenting on these New Testament passages. And so I think it works much better that way. Why? Because of the timeline. We don't have we don't have rabbinical yeah. literature compiled and unknown uh, about comp compilation of the Mishnah until at least at least the seventh century. Now, was it before that? Sure, but at least the seventh century is the first manuscripts we have. We have we have a similar issue in the Jewish world, and we've talked about this before with the Zohar. Right. So the Zohar in the ultra orthodox world, they believe that it was that it's the it was revealed by Elijah to Shimon Bar Yochai in the second century and that it was preserved orally and then that then later it's written so when they read the zohar they don't read it as a medieval compilation or even early modern right. they they read it as if it because they had to give it that they had to give it authority of a rabbinic sage because it because it sometimes it's, it competes with the Talmud. And right. so they had to, if they thought it was newer than the Talmud, then they couldn't hold it to the same authority. 
So they had to give it a history, right? They had to, it was presented as being a revelation by a rabbinic sage. Here, here's a, another issue if you just think of in terms of Mormonism. So Mormonism believes the Mormon book was, the Book of Mormon was translated by Joseph Smith, right? But then if you compare later editions of the Book of Mormon, they have to like change, they go back and change it because they have subsequent prophetic right. revelation. So the initial book is supposedly a translation and then later, they can't retell the story of the revelation, right? They can't tell the restore. They can't say Joseph Smith yeah, was they a can't bad translator. Yeah. They can't say he made a mistake, right? So they reframe it, and and the idea again is all, in all these cases, a story of where this text came from has to has to be you know where does this text came from? This it should be it should be noted quickly, and this is one of the things that I got people said this about me when I was making my video on Hillel and Shammai. This is not a dig on Judaism. Christianity does the exact same thing. The okay. exact same thing. If you look at the the uh, the the gospel, the gospels that were written, you know, or the epistles that were written from people that are clearly pseudepigraphical. Why are they pseudepigraphical? Because the Christian church wanted authority in certain matters. And so they write stuff and they and somebody attributes it to somebody else. This is not just a dig on on uh, rabbinic Judaism. Right, the Didache Right, exactly. there's like a popular messianic, one of the main messianic voices probably in the last twenty five years, publishes a translation on the Didache as if we as if we care. You know what I mean? As if it as if people should care. And and there's somebody it's, cares. It's, somebody it's cares. They're not. Somebody. They're not. I. They're not building centers in the in downtown Jerusalem uh, because nobody cares. Somebody's bankrolling. So, and yeah, anyway. Yeah. But okay. the point is it's, it's, it's uh smoke and mirrors, right? It's deflection oh, yeah. from the scripture. And uh, yeah, so it, it's just a strange. There is a, there's you know? an Orthodox uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, priest that I follow on YouTube. And he is honestly, except for the fact that he's Eastern Orthodox, he's fantastic. He's really good. And uh, I love listening to his stuff. He does these uh, video shorts. My buddy Jeff Young uh, uh, turned me on to him. He's he's just fantastic. But he did one. He, I saw an interview with him. Somebody was interviewing him about Sola Scriptura. And man, I, as I, you know, as we talk about this, I'm reminded of that. And the reason I'm reminded of that is we should we should maybe I should pull that clip. Maybe I should pull that clip in and talk about it. He, honestly, I can't say enough good things about his short clips. But boy, oh boy, his his exposition on why sola scriptura is is you know the Eastern Orthodox Church says that the uh, the like the devil's theology in the in the uh, Reformation is sola scriptura, and he has a very succinct way of thinking about it and, and a very um, good way of letting his audience understand his position. I think he's very wrong. Um, but nonetheless, maybe we should, maybe that's what we should do next week. Okay. Or two weeks from two weeks from now. Okay. Two weeks. Um, right, yeah, let's do it. I want to, uh, I want to play a short clip here because Bobby K, Bobby K in the chat room, he says, uh, I'm glad you said this, Caleb. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Bobby K says, but Caleb, that means we'd need to study the new Testament more than the art scroll. God said he chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Do you know if you're an intellectual, you'll probably end up in hell for it? Yeah. 
That's Bobby K's uh, contribution to our soundboard. Thank you, Bobby. All right. Uh, I'm glad you said this, Caleb. Christian churches add and redo things too. That's right. In fact, what's really interesting, I'm, I'm going through church history right now. And uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that I've, I've found very interesting is the idea of the Nicene Creed, right? The Nicene Creed comes out in, in 325. But the Nicene Creed that we have today actually gets rewritten at the Council of Chalcedon, right? And uh, they do that because there is uh, much debate over the r- word homoousios. And of the so, same substance, of, of right. being of the same substance, yeah. Right. So it's interesting that we have the, uh, the, the creed of the Council of Nicaea, which is what is the, the 325 version is called. And then you have the Nicene Creed, which is what everyone uses today, which is not actually the one formatted at. So there even in and the reason I bring that up is because there even in that there is a there is a rewriting of, you know, they're they're editing and they're tweaking as they're going along. Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. They're trying to nail down exactly how they believe and what they believe. And, and some of the debates uh, that go on are are not only interesting, but they're just Caleb. Uh, even in the scribal tradition, like the Codex Bizet, for example, right? And you're right. you're looking at Luke twenty two, and 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 that's just one example. And this is now in the in the lane of the text critics, right? So we have SBL and even even ETS. We have scholars that both in the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament are specialists in what we call textual criticism. And what that means is, it, it sounds mean. Some of them are, uh, might, uh, like your Bart Ehrman kind of people who are more anti-God, right? That are in that are in those circles um, that are, you know, attacking kind of the, the text maybe, but, um, or attacking the, the faith tradition, I should say. But what they're doing is they're saying, look, how do we deal with manuscript evidence, right? Then the, the text critics are going to, they're going to bring the same scrutiny to texts of the Hebrew Bible, texts of the, let's say the epistles of Paul, or even manuscripts of the Mishnah, right? That Because the text critical methods are not based on who it is, right? Or if this is Bible or not, they, they'll do the same thing with the writings of Plato or Josephus, right? The idea is if you have these manuscripts that exist and they're fragmentary, how do we know what the original reading is, right? How, how do we how do we know and what are the methods involved with evaluating textual variants? I'm sorry. What I'm laughing at is the... Uh, so. When I was doing my my thesis, I was so worried that people were going to take my my thesis idea and then try to duplicate it and get it wrong. That's what I was really worried about. Now that certainly could happen in in say the the Hebrew roots movement or something. Somebody could get a uh, uh, take one of the ideas and, and try to rewrite it and do it wrong. But one one of the one of the things that uh, I was I was starting to get close to was in my studies of of Bizet. Some people call it Beza, right? And uh, so... Not to be gonna, confused with Jeff Bezos. Yes. I'm going to frame this argument, and I'm going to do it quickly, but I'm but we're going to take the rest of the time because we only got a couple minutes left. And I, but I, I think that the, I find this super interesting, and other people probably don't. That's okay. I don't really care. I'm going to say it anyway. 
So Codex Bose is is very interesting because there is a Latin side and there is a Greek side. And there's a debate among the scholarly world on, on which one came first. In other words, which one is the original? One is a copy, one is the original. So which one is copying off the other? And I think that I personally believe that the evidence is is stronger for the notion that the Latin is the original that the person is is writing down, and then they are translating into the Greek. And so this is this is the the codex. I can't remember. Itself. Okay, when you have it open, it's a giant codex. You have it open, right? Which is the Latin on the left and the Greek on the right? I don't remember. I, I'm I I don't want to say because I'm going to get it wrong. I can't I can't remember. But basically, you have full text on one page is. Latin, full text, page. opposite page, Greek, or, Greek, which, or exactly. vice versa. And they exactly. follow each other. Yeah. And so in my work that I was doing on, on the Eucharist, um, I, I had to jump into all this. And the reason why is because in that codex, it's the only codex that does this, but in that codex, the, uh, the verse 19 and a little bit more, but verse 19, so 2219 of Luke is taken out. Now, once again, it's an early, it's a fourth century manuscript, but it's said that the tradition of this manuscript goes back probably 200 years. And so what they're saying is, is that this is an early tradition and that Luke 22, 19 is not in there. Bart Ehrman runs with this. And what he says is that this is the original. It's the only manuscript that, evidence that we have of this, but it's the original. Now, everybody else says, no, this is a mistake. They took it out or they took it out for a reason, right? Bart Ehrman says, no, no, no. This was the original and everybody else wanted this verse in there. And so they add it and then they distribute it and it catches like wildfire. That's his argument. And so the reason that this is so interesting to me is because I talked to Bart Ehrman about this. I asked him, I said, and my... I'll, I'll just give you my my uh, my thesis on this is that the the textual critics have been able to pinpoint where this codex originates from. It originates from Lyon, right in France. Ooh, that Caleb just spoke France. I, wow. I know. <laughs> and so they, yeah, and so I started to look at what is going on in the fourth century in Lyon, and why some might, someone might not want this verse in Luke 22:19 and it's my belief that what they are trying to do in this city and what the scribes are trying to do is they're trying to disassociate Luke 22 from the Passover and instead what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it into so so what they can do is they can say that the tradition of 1 Corinthians to support is the liturgy that they want Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so I asked Bart Ehrman, I said, uh, I know your position on this and I know the opposite position. If the, and he says, there's no other good reason why they would have taken it out. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Ehrman, if there was another reason that was proposed on why they took it out, would you be willing to look at it? And he said, it would have to be a really good argument. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he took a phone call. Anyway, the point is, is that I, I, I mean, this kind of textual criticism is super interesting. And I think that these kind of textual criticisms are things that have never really been done to the Mishnah. This is where I'm going with this, by the way. They are now. They, they are now, they are but they now. weren't originally. Yeah, yeah. In, the last, in the last 10 years, there's scholars you don't that have are really a, in Israel. Yeah, but you don't have a, uh, you don't have a critical, a critical, uh, you know, 
translation. What, what they've what they're doing, and it's I think his name's Chaim Lapin, L-A-P-I-N. Um, I believe what he's creating is a digital Mishnah that has all it's like a giant parallel and it and it's a computer it's based on a computer model towards text criticism. So um I don't know if it's complete or not. But basically get, he's hey, we gotta get some is, AI on this, man. If we get some yeah, AI no on it, it'll it'll really it'll really kick. All right. Hey, uh I think I've already said this several times, but we're gonna say it again. Gonna be gone next week. So don't come back here for a show next week. I'm going to give you a couple of pieces of information before we log off here. First of all, seehagatorresource.com. Send us your uh, show ideas, your questions, your topics, whatever. We want them. We need them. Uh, they help drive this show. So please send them in uh, or call in and leave them in a voice message. 253-465-3205. 253-465-3205. Do not forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel. It really does help us. I know that sounds weird, but it does help us. I can give you these coupon codes again starting tomorrow. That is May 11th, 2023 through May 19th, 2023. MM, both lowercase, MM20 is going to get you 20% off your cart. It will not work for a library membership and a couple of other products, but ultimately uh, you can shop almost everything in our store. And then if you want the library membership at 5% off, library, all lowercase, library 5 and that's the number five, library number five. Um, and if you do that, you will get, uh, I think it's somewhere around $5 off that library membership. It is a screaming deal, and I would encourage anyone to uh, go check it out. All right, we'll be gone next week. We uh, appreciate all of you, and we appreciate everything that you're doing for us. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.